The Indigenous Protocols Project welcomes Teresa Tunilik. Teresa is an artist and activist that hails from Rankin Inlet, Nunavut. She creates wall hangings that depict the life of the Inuit influenced by her parents' lives, who are part of the nomadic people of the eastern coast of the Hudson Bay. Their clothing styles, events, seasons, and congenitu landscape are presented by her work using wool, thread, cloth, animal skins, and her own hair. Along with her wall hangings, Teresi has also created illustrations for Inuktitut books. She's currently the advisor for arts and traditional economy with the Department of Economic Development and Transportation, the government of Nunavut, since 2003. I would like to welcome you, Teresi, to our podcast. Thank you. So the purpose is of our Indigenous Protocols research is to provide practical and current information about Inuit protocols and intellectual property and cultural expressions in a way that responds to the needs of the Inuit and the communities that are revitalizing, renewing and refreshing their respective systems and structures in support of arts, culture, heritage, and of course, language revitalization. So Tracy, can you talk to us about some of the oral histories for protocols within your community? Yes, um, the oral history is among Inuit, a very old, old one. Uh, It just wasn't um, established just in the last uh, century. But um, it's something that uh, because we were an oral people and we didn't have any pens and papers and things like that. So everything we learned by was by memory and also by um, the teachings went from different levels to chil- from children on to uh, adolescence to adulthood and these were done so in a way so that children were kept innocent as long as they could be. And uh, one of the oral traditions um, that we, uh, the Inuit abided by was the, um, some of the things that they made because everything that we used was handmade and Every clothing we wore was hand-sewn. So it became important in a way so that um, when a woman was uh, a really good seamstress and she had her own patterns, it was up to her as to whom she could pass those patterns to. Uh, She did not just... Uh, if anybody came and said, can I, borrow, can I use your pattern um, in a certain part of the amalti or the clothing, um, the person couldn't quite copy her unless she gave the consent. And this was followed a lot. And especially um, uh, with, um, I have, a little girl's amalti pattern that was given to me by an elder. 
And before, when I asked her if she could do a pattern for me for a little four-year-old girl, she said she would. But she told me, I am not, I am not to share with anyone. I am not to distribute it. She is giving to me in trust that I alone will use that. So there's that intellectual property already being uh, practiced. And this was practiced not just recently. It has been practiced for many, many years. And um, it also came to tools when the men used to make their own hunting tools and they would, and they would make um, fleshing and cutting pattern uluid for their women. Um, if mm. someone wanted someone's um, particular pattern, they would need the consent of the one that first made it. Now, uh, when we talk about these things, um, this was followed a lot and um, because um, the word of mouth was law once it once a protocol was set. So um, it was, um, it's like you have to make sure that you respect the person whom, of whose work you, you know, the copyright. Uh, it still goes way back to when, we, when Inuit used to make their own things all the time. So when you look at a living culture that had no stores for 300 miles and you couldn't just go to a store to buy a saw or a nulu or, or a harpoon head, these were all handmade and a lot of them were passed down from uh, family to family or to generation to generation and also the patterning of that uh, particular item was also followed because a lot of the uh, the the children who who were growing up among their family uh, were were being taught right from the parents and so therefore these are the parents now that are passing on their knowledge on to the younger ones and learning never stopped it was always continuous all day long during a day and each and every every child even had responsibilities throughout the day you know if they're from the age 10 to and so on and up then they they can be responsible for fetching water you know and looking after younger children and that and um I think um, our oral history, if, if, if it could be understood and the law we had already been uh, living by, I think it would make it so much easier for indigenous intellectual property to be, to be documented and to be, to be so, so that it can be uh, educational so that it's informative so that the younger generation that did not quite grow up with this due to residential schools can now regain that again um, because our um, 
I really feel that since our culture, the Inuit culture was always living in a family, uh, teaching one another, and uh, passing on the knowledge from so on and so on. But they always, sometimes they specialized on what they taught because uh, some Inuit were better at astronomy than they were at, um, you know, doing, making things. And so it fit the personality of the person who was living around them. So I I have a question then on, so we'll use the example of um, you being gifted a pattern to make for the four-year-old. When that's gifted, is there also like a instruction on how to do it? Or is it just shown once and you just take that? Or like, how do you work with it after it's been given to you? Well, I've already be, had been making adult amounties. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, I just didn't know how to make a smaller one for a child. And so when, when this pattern was gifted to me, that pattern was what I needed, but I already know how to put it together. Okay. <laughs> and then when but if I were, but if I were to say, uh, she is no longer around, and so therefore I don't have any right to, uh, like share it or because I did say yes to her, I did give her my word that I it would be kept only within me then then um let's say I wanted to make a a different cut on it or something then I would go to her next of kin who would be her daughter if it would be all right to make that change because that really is not my pattern it's a it's the author is her. It's Mrs. Satiana, not me, who who owns that. Even though it was given to me, it is rightfully known to be her pattern. So is there any time then? So if she's gifted the pattern to you and you can't gift it, does that mean the pattern ends? I can keep using it and using it to make more and more. Right. But it's you, my pedagogy, but I cannot share. Right. So, so then it ends. Uh, it was her wish. And I had to, I have to abide by it. Okay. And there was another incident where um, a friend of mine from another community was going down to uh, medical travel and I went to see her at the airport, and during the time she is waiting for her airplane to land yet, another plane lands in from a a small community. Out comes a woman wearing an amalti, carrying a baby on her back. She takes my arm and she goes, Teresa, who's that? And I said, I don't know, because I didn't know at the time. And she she was she was really peeved because she recognized her amount pattern be 
being used by someone she didn't even know. And that's why to keep peace, these kinds of things were put into place, not just recently, but long, long ago. So because we still needed permission and we still needed consent. And, um, you know, uh, if you wanted to make a change on anything, then you would have to go to that particular person and ask them if, they, if it was all right to make that change. And did, this also translates over for all of the carvings that are done? Yes, um, we are encouraged to learn. We can copy at the beginning, but then we are encouraged to come up with our own ideas, to come up with our own style, to come up with our own ideas, and, and, and to be creative in our own being. And um, otherwise, all carvings would be looking alike and... <laughs> You know, there won't be any distinction as to who, who, whose beautiful artwork it is. But I really think about the fact that when Inuit were the first to make the kayak and they were the first to make the MLT and big organizations, world organizations like the World uh, Intellectual Property Organization, refused to say that they were first made by Inuit simply because there was no author to it, you know. And yet the world knows the Inuit were the very first ones to be wearing a Maltese made out of um, either caribou or seal skin because that's all the material we had. And Inuit are very adaptive, if, if you give them new material, they find a way to make something out of it. And uh, I think this is uh, something that really needs, needs attention to, is that I remember when the electrical tools first came out and some of the art collectors were questioning, is it still considered Inuit art? whose hand, you know, powered that and made the carving. Not the power tool itself, but it was made by the hands of the Inuit artists, you know. And uh, it, it made me look back at, um, even made me look back at the time when the uh, Inuit were introduced to different soapstone and that, and is it still Inuit? carving, they wondered, yes, of course, the person who is making is making the artwork is an Inuk, you know, it doesn't matter how, how, what you use to get to the end piece, it matters whose hand it was made by, mm -hmm. you know, and um, I think uh, some of the uh, some of the things that we should now be advancing to is uh, perhaps looking at universities that might be interested in maybe perhaps, uh, um, you know, using the Inuit traditional knowledge and, 
and looking at Inuit, who, who, whom we as Inuit consider professors because they are experts, but to other people, they're considered no one because they don't have a piece of paper saying that, you know, you know, they don't have a diploma or anything like that when actually they are the best at at what they do and they're the best at teaching it and they're the best at talking about it. They're the best at teaching about it. And so I would be very interested in perhaps um, even making a recommendation on um, how to give or recognize uh, Inuit uh, producers uh, of clothing or art or whatever it may be. But because in Nunavut we don't have any universities that could, you know, get you to that point, we just have really... Really, really good people who are really, really good at art and really, really good at making things. But sometimes they, they are not known simply because they don't have a piece of paper that they are, you know, they are a professor at this. And mm-hmm. you know, some of the Inuit are best uh, talkers about Inuit culture. Some of them just talk through their art. Some of them talk through their songs, you know, and these are the ones that we have to be able to recognize. And, um, you know, when, when we know so much about snow, let's say, people make fun of us that we, we have 80 words of snow. No, we don't. All we have is the different steps and the different conditions and the textures that we have names for each each one. Like like when you say kanil, that means the first snow that comes down. And when you say city loka, that means the snow is packed already. And if you say okaloa, that means the snow has been formed like a leaf facing the north northwest, you know, and you can use that as a direction. You know, it's your compass. Just like the Inukshuit used to be our compasses. They used to be like uh especially if you were traveling in a fog and you came across an Inukshuk and you recognize it by how it's made, you know exactly where you are already. And um, those are the kinds of things that uh, I feel um, has been exaggerated upon, but they were definitely very, very useful in the olden days when people traveled by foot by dog team and by, you know, kayak or, or by boat. And, um, today they seem to be just decorations now, but that's what the Inuksuit were meant to be in the olden days. And how are the oral histories shared now? So when I, you know, did the introduction, you also draw for children's books. 
So are those images that are in the children's books also from an oral history? These are stories that were written by communities. Mm-hmm. And I read it and then I put I put a image that that um visualizes the story. That's what I do. That's what I had done. Yeah. And so we do need there has been a lot more uh, children's book coming out in Inuktitut, which I really, really like. And do those share some of the oral histories? They're now putting it into writing? Some of them are. Some are like uh, more about hunting or things like that. And and I try to match the season they're talking about. And so... Um, I really enjoyed that. And so where are the oral histories today on the copyrights for the clothing, the materials, art pieces? It it is still living among the older ones and it is still passed on to the daughters. But not everybody is... um, seamstress anymore like when we used to live uh, in uh, nomadic camps and we would just be the family you had to be Jack or Jane of all trade in mm-hmm. order for the, the family to survive in order for the family to be warm in order for the family to keep learning and this uh, knowledge is being passed on down to the younger people. So let's say a seal skin was caught. The man caught it, he cut it in a way, but it was the woman who fleshed it and took another layer of skin off. Then they dried it on the ground, stretched. And then um, after it had dried, it needed to be softened. And then it's made into clothing. And because we are a culture and a people that believe that everything we we caught from an animal should be used every in every which way it can be without wasting it. So all the leftover pieces from sewing, the the leftover sealskins are then given to the younger girls. So they practice stitching. Mm-hmm. So they practice um patterning on their dolls. So therefore nothing really was wasted at all in, in the olden days. <laughs> that sounds like such a great experience to be able to pass down that knowledge. Yes. I tell you it was really hard to start learning to make really fine stitching like when you're five. <laughs> <laughs> And so with with this Indigenous Protocols project that Carfac National is working on, you know, we we do hope to be able to have it in a language and, and translated, but also to keep that oral history alive. What are some ideas that could take place to be able to share this information and, you know, bring that, I guess, oral tradition into this 
you know, formal document. Yes, things have changed and our time, we, we Inuit always change with the time, you know. And, um, you know, I was born in an igloo, now I'm, you know, having a Zoom meeting with you, you know. It's, you know, we go along with the times as they come. And I believe what we need to do with the oral Inuit history now is to document it. Because we are no longer an oral people. Yes, we are an oral people, but we don't teach everything by oral anymore. We teach with material things. We use the schools now use, you know, the children going to school and that they're learning to read and spell and all this stuff. And their, their learning environment is so different from what it was before. And so therefore, I think it's very important that some of the oral tradition and I think there's been some books that have been written, uh, you know, uh, by some of the, um, previous leaders of Nunavut before. Uh, but I really think that for to keep the culture alive, the oral tradition now must be recorded so that the young Inuit know they have rights. The young artists know that they have rights. That the older generation also know that they have rights and this is the new world we live in so we must bring that up as well so this is my thought so the music is music in that same realm of this is my song and I'll, I'll share it with you but you can't share it again does that still happen within the communities uh Yes, because the um, intellectual property among Inuit is both tangible and intangible. And so um, one of the elders told me that um, uh, from Igulik, his name was Imaruito. He said when, when Inuit had made songs, like nothing was written but all to memory and these are stories of their lives or somebody else or something of an ev- event that happened and so uh, he he said that if if someone if he had a song okay if he had a song and a younger person wanted to use some of the words that he used in his new song then he would need permission from the first songwriter, and if he got the consent, yes, he could. And even the sound, you know, higher or lower tones, you know, this is intangible. These are stories up there on their own. And so he told me that uh, it was never allowed to copy someone else's song and just use it without Mm -hmm. their consent. You would have to get the permission from from the songwriter or or the song maker at that time because we had you know we didn't have a writing system everything was done through memory mm-hmm. so 
And what happened with the young woman at the airport that was wearing a copy of somebody else's work? She did, actually, the lady did not approach her. She was too pissed off. <laughs> and how would it, and how would it yeah. get so far away? Like it that, so you had a pattern, but it was coming from a whole other community that came into town. Like how, obviously, an oral history was passed and passed and passed for her to be able to have it. Because this was a newer generation oh. that, you know, post-residential school generation. They don't. Ha they didn't have the same teaching as they did in class. Then, uh, when they when we left for nine months of the year, you know, and three months is so short to teach everything because um, you still had to hunt. You still had to do caribou skins. You still had to make clothing. Nothing stopped in life for Inuit. Mm. Well, thank you so much. This has been very valuable. I'm really looking forward to our next steps with this project, and hopefully we'll be able to come up there. Yes, that would be awesome. Mm -hmm.